Father God. What an amazingly loving, gracious, and all-merciful God you are. You are our sovereign God. You are our maker and creator God. And you are our saving God. We thank you. We thank you for the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord, that now resides in all who believe. We thank you for your word, Father, which now we we open up and we ask for clarity. We ask for conviction. We ask for your truth to reign supreme in our lives. And Lord, as always, may you show us how to apply your word to our lives. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is one of those messages where when I started putting it together and doing my study, it went through several name changes. And uh, Friday afternoon at like 5 o'clock, I run down the hall, and there's Ruth's door still open. I'm like, thank you. And, and, and I run in, and I'm like, can I change my title, please? And she's like, okay. But yeah, it was, it was several different things. And, and, you know, as I'm going through my study, you know, well, this is jumping out at me. And you kind of go, oh, that, that would be a good title. And that's really what, well, no, then this, you, this is good. And this is really what it's, uh, that, well, that's. And then I ended up for such a time as this. And, uh, and I will explain why. <clears throat> but first I'll explain through a, a, a story. And that is, um, most of you know that, that uh, we have three of our kiddos that we were blessed to be able to foster and then adopt up in Trinity County. And uh, our oldest two of that bunch, um, there was a time where we're in the adoption process and, oh gosh, it was like a year into this process. Maybe it was even longer, a year and a half, something like that, some crazy thing. And everything, you know, seemed to be moving right along. Until it came to light with state adoptions, and mind you, the state adoptions group that we dealt with up in the northwest corner of California was, was an extremely liberal, uh, liberal uh, group and, and had some ideas about things that we didn't necessarily share. In any case, it came up about some of our biblical disciplinary practices. And that came out, and it wasn't something that had been hidden from them. It was on our initial application it just shows us they didn't bother to read the initial application because these things came to light. And then next thing you know, they, they, they basically, they told us, um, we do not want these children to be with you. And so they made it their, their, their goal at that point to, to not have that happen. And this just scared us. It was heart-wrenching. And, and there was a time that I have to admit that in that process, I started to rethink our biblical understanding of how we might discipline our children. And I thought, well, maybe I just, maybe I just let that, just let that go. I just let that go. And we were sharing this with, uh, with, uh, uh, some close friends at the time. And one of them said to me, you've got to be kidding. You, you can't do that. You can't for a second set aside 
what the word tells you because you think this is going to be a difficult situation or, or, or that you're going to lose the kids or, or anything like that. You just can't. You have to have faith and you have to have trust. And they were absolutely right. So I repented before the Lord. And Lord, we will commit and stay firm here. And, and we will just see what you have in store. Well, a little bit uh, time goes by. I don't know if it was a few weeks, maybe a month, something like that. And CPS, Child Protective Services, works with a lawyer. And the lawyer had been out of town for a while and kind of missed a lot of what was going on. So the lawyer comes back into town and hears about our situation and he calls up state adoptions and he says, he says, you have got to be kidding me. You all back down right now or we will see you in court. There is no reason why the Underwood should not have these kids, why these kids should not be with the Underwoods. Guess what? They back down. And in a matter of another few weeks, we were at their uh, adoption uh, signing, last court hearing, and, and, and they were ours. And, and, I, and I tell you that because this, this, this fellow, this lawyer that came in, it, it was for such a time as this. Oh, my word. If we ever needed somebody for such a time as this, it was then. My faith was, was I'm sorry to say, waning in that department, in that area. And we needed a certain strengthening. We needed a certain encouragement. And, and the Lord brought this man into our life to help out with this situation for such a time as this. Well, this is what we see in our passage. If you haven't already turned there, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we are going to see how God used somebody else in the life of the Thessalonians to bring strength and encouragement to them during an incredibly difficult time, even a time of affliction and a time of suffering. And he did so for such a time as this. Now, last week we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 20, and we learned about a God-pleasing church. And just by way of review to this end, we, we learned that there is indeed a church that pleases God, In the case of the Thessalonica church, they became imitators of other God-pleasing churches that had undergone persecution and suffering. They became imitators, and therefore they were pleasing to the Lord. Secondly, that religion doesn't please God, or there is a kind of religion, I should say, that doesn't please God. Um, Back then, it was um, the Jews, and they were going after the Christians by way of persecution, and then you had the Thessalonians, and they were persecuting the Thessalonian church. And for us today, we would say any religion apart from biblical Christianity is religion that doesn't please God. And then we looked at, at the consequences for not pleasing God, that those who actually, in the religious realm, uh, would would hinder the gospel from going out, from going forth, from being preached, that they would actually have God's wrath upon them to the utmost. And then, um, fourthly, there is also a fellowship that does please God. And we learn that Paul and, and Silas and Timothy had a special relationship with the Thessalonian church. There was a deep bond of love between them. Their fellowship was sweet, and Paul couldn't wait to get back with them, to be with them in person and and face-to-face, except he wasn't allowed to due to satanic opposition. Consequently, 
We then considered our fellowship here at Calvary Bible Church during an extremely difficult time in the life of our church. And, and we realized that in many ways we are indeed in a spiritual battle. How we need to be putting on things like the full armor of God to stand firm against Satan and his demons. This would include prayer. We must be practicing the one another's. In other words, how we deal with love, treat one another, and also demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And then lastly, there was the result of pleasing God, and that is that the Thessalonian church becomes the hope, joy, and crown of exaltation in the presence of Jesus Christ at his return. And and we said, what an amazing thing to look forward to for us as Christians to be with other believers in God's heavenly realm with Christ and knowing that we might be called or, or deemed the hope joy, and crown of exaltation for having pleased God in this life. And to even hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So this brings us to chapter 3, where Paul tells the Thessalonians how he has been concerned. He's been concerned for their, their newfound faith, especially amidst the trials and sufferings that both he and Silas and Timothy have been going through, as well as what the Thessalonians have been going through and, he, and, and how they could be strengthened and how they have been encouraged. So why don't we go ahead and as we do, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this morning... As we consider our text, we're going to look at it in in three major sections. And I want you to see how it is that we as individuals, and as I've been saying, and we as a church family, do have certain, we might say, needs during afflictions and suffering that God has already planned for. And we want to understand how he will deal with those needs so that your faith during difficult times, can remain steadfast. The three section headings will be this. We're going to look at a need for encouragement and strength. We're going to look at strength and encouragement delivered. And then finally, trials and the providence of God. Now this morning, you're going to see, we're going to, we're going to look at our text and lay it out in, in, in a slightly different fashion than maybe what we're used to. Because Paul, oftentimes, um, he loves to 
kind of interject things in his course of thought. We would add in commas and parentheses. You don't have that in the original Greek, but he'll be talking about one thing, then he kind of goes over here, then he returns over here back to that same subject, and he kind of jumps around a lot, which he does in even these these five verses. He likes to repeat himself sometimes for emphasis or say something a slightly different way for better understanding. And so, so this morning, we're going to kind of put our text together in a, in a different manner. It doesn't mean that we are changing the meaning of the text in any way, shape, or form, but rather we're going to kind of systematize our text, putting things into uh, things of like subject matter in these three headings. Now, before we jump into our first heading, it might also help just for me to, to summarize our passage so that we can keep things straight as we do this. So, so in a nutshell, what we just read, here is, here is what's happening. Now, Paul is, tells the Thessalonian church that after he, Silas, and Timothy came to Athens, he, he couldn't stand uh, not knowing how the Thessalonians were faring in their new faith especially amidst the persecution that had been plaguing Paul and Silas and Timothy. And and we also would presume the Thessalonian church as well. So he decides to send Timothy back. He sends Timothy back to the Thessalonian church to strengthen and encourage them and to get a report as to how they are doing, and especially in regard to their faith. Now, Paul's concern was that the afflictions and the sufferings that they were all going through would kind of derail the Thessalonians' less than mature faith at this point because they haven't been believers for for all that long. And, And he's also reminding them how those trials and difficulties are all a part of God's sovereign, providential plan. And these things were to be expected. Furthermore... Paul was concerned that Satan would be trying to tempt them and tempt them to the point where they might kind of kind of shipwreck their faith and Paul and company's work would have been in vain. So our first heading again is this, a need for encouragement and strength. And we're going to see this from oh, a bit in verse 3, in verse 4, and the second half of verse 5. And this is where we kind of start jumping around because, again, I want you to see from these verses which parts indicate that there was a need for the Thessalonian church to be strengthened and encouraged. So look there back at verse um, uh, verse 3. Right at the beginning of verse 3, 3a we like to call it. And he says, so that no one, meaning in the Thessalonian church, would be disturbed by these afflictions. Disturbed there is an interesting word because it literally means to move to and fro, but also to wag. As in a tail, like the tail of a dog or or the tail of an animal. And so in a figurative sense then, it means to move in mind or to change one's mind afflictions it means to crush or to press or to squeeze or to break and here it's used figuratively in terms of persecution and opposition in chapter 1 verse 6 for tribulation uh we see this all pertaining to the persecutions that paul silas and timothy were under going at the time. Paul's concern was that because of these afflictions then, the Thessalonians might might change their mind about this newfound faith. Then we could also look at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, for indeed when we were with you we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass 
as you know. Well, that suffer affliction, it's actually one word, and it's the same word that we just saw in verse 3. And so here Paul confirms that the afflictions suffered have already happened. These things have come to pass. And we're going to bring this verse back uh, in a little bit when we talk about God's providence. So just let us be reminded once again what these afflictions and sufferings were. Remember that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they left Thessalonica not under the best terms with the city. In fact, the city was in an uproar. Uh, The Jews had become jealous of Paul's new teaching and of of the converts that he was making. And a mob formed and, and actually went and attacked the house of Jason where they thought Paul and the others were staying. However, Paul and the gang were not there, so the mob actually drags Jason and some other Christians uh, out of there and brings them before the city authorities with severe accusations that they were all acting, quote, contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. That's from Acts seventeen seven and 9. The trio of Paul, Silas, Timothy then immediately left under the cover of darkness and they kind of headed south and west to Berea. Guess what? Wasn't long before trouble followed them there. And we read this in Acts 17 verses 13 to 14. Luke writes, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. All right, so now we see Silas and Timothy meet up with Paul in Athens, and that's where Paul then dispatches Timothy to go back to Thessalonica, And then Silas uh, goes on to Philippi while Paul uh, ventures on to Corinth. Timothy and Silas would eventually um, rejoin Paul in Corinth, where Timothy then gives Paul the good report about the Thessalonians, and then Paul sits down to write this first letter to the Thessalonians. All of this to say, for whatever amount of time the trio spent there in Thessalonica followed By their time in Berea, they were hammered, hammered with much opposition, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. They were persecuted, they were mistreated, they were afflicted with suffering, not to mention the suffering that they had before in Philippi, where they were beaten and then thrown into prison. So, back in our text... Paul is telling the Thessalonian brethren that when he, Silas, and Timothy left Thessalonica, he knew that they were young believers in the faith. And his great concern was that the persecution that they had all endured would cause this new faith to start to crumble. And we'll get into the reasons why in in a little bit. Anyway, Paul tells them how he dispatched Timothy to come back to strengthen and encourage them and tell them how any afflictions and sufferings that Paul, Timothy, Silas had been undergoing as well as any that would have been taking place in the Thessalonian church was all part of God's sovereign plan. Then we see another reason they might have needed strength and encouragement. This is in in verse 5b, the second half of verse 5. 
When Paul says, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So one last concern for Paul is that the tempter might have tempted the Thessalonians in regard to their faith. And all the work that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had done while they were there would would then have been done in vain. The, The work of laying the gospel foundation would have been meaningless, aimless. Now, it's interesting because Paul uses this same phrase about, about uh, labor being in vain or, or would be in vain back in chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So if Paul understands that they're coming to them, not in vain. This is all part, again, of God's sovereign plan. Meaning how they came with the gospel message for the Thessalonians and how the Thessalonians received the word of God in a saving way. So let's go back. Who's the tempter? Who's the tempter? Well, Paul identifies him back in chapter 2, verse 18. Satan. Satan, the one who has hindered Paul and the others when they wanted to come back to the Thessalonians to encourage them in person. So how is it that Satan was tempting them in regard to their faith and, and what is meant by their labor being in vain? Now, there's two possibilities, really. One is that Paul means that they would have acted on the temptation, that they would have abandoned their faith completely. And if this were the case, well, then we would say, what does that tell us about their supposed faith? Notice now I said supposed faith, because the the fact is, is it would have shown itself to not have been true believing faith at all, that they never really had saving faith to begin with. We see this in Matthew 13. Back in Matthew 13, you have the parable of the soils in verses 20 and 21. It says, this is Jesus speaking, the one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. I remember doing a whole study on this passage uh, when I was in seminary and writing a paper on it and coming to the conclusion that the, the first three are all identified as 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 not in the realm of salvation. It's only the last one that falls on the fertile soil that indeed talks about saving faith. And of course, we understand well from Scripture that nobody under any circumstances can ever lose their salvation. In other words, you can't forfeit it. You can't hand it back to God. You can't do something so heinous that it is revoked. Even what we have read about as being the unpardonable sin, I would know. I will tell you, cannot be committed by a true believer. Here, Paul and Scripture are clear, such as in Romans eight thirty five, when Paul asked the rhetorical questions, "Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword?" What's the implied answer? None. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Then he goes on in verse 38 and he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, we could put in parentheses, including Satan, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
That's the gospel, right? The, the great truth that, that, that Christ Jesus died for wicked, nasty sinners like us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could, we could have fellowship with God once again, that we could live eternally with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. But, but the sin would have to be dealt with. It would have to be paid for. And it was paid for by the blood of Jesus. I mean, that's what we just, just celebrated here, right? With communion. His body being broke for us, his blood being shed for us, that we could have salvation, that we could be reconciled, that we could be brought back together with our Creator. And he paid that price by going to the cross. He died the death that we should have died. That should have been us on the cross. It was him. He took our sin upon himself. God's wrath was then upon his very own son. He's taken off that cross. He's put in the grave. Three days later, he raises from the dead. He raises from the dead so we, everybody, would know that yes, yes, it is finished. Just what he said on the cross. That indeed, he is God. Only God could raise himself from the dead. And in that, we know that we do have that forgiveness we do have eternal life because of Jesus' eternal life if we would repent of our sin and believe on Him. Now, the other possibility, the other possibility going back to our text here as to what's being said, and the one that I think more likely is that Paul is speaking about the Thessalonians maybe in the sense of shipwrecking their faith, but, but not in the sense of, 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 of the faith being completely uh, gone but rather maybe it has been dashed on the rocks. It has been broken apart, but they are still clinging. They are still hanging on to a, a piece of wreckage, that floating barrel, you know, a, a chunk of the ship. In other words, their faith is damaged. Their faith is not dead. And you see, here's the deal with Satan and his method of, of operation, if you will. He's got three basic options of what he can do with people. Three basic options uh, that he can do where the gospel is concerned. First, remember, he doesn't want any person ever to know the gospel. He doesn't want anyone to read the gospel or to hear the gospel. And so here's what he does. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul is speaking about those who are perishing when he says, quote, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, did you get that? As, as, as God of this world, Satan has the ability to actually blind our minds to the gospel, blind the minds of unbelievers to the gospel, which also shows us how our salvation is completely and utterly and solely a work of God. Because not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, right? But Satan has also blinded our minds as unbelievers until God decides to remove the blinders. Secondly, secondly, what Satan can do, or a second option is, if the gospel does reach a person's heart, Satan can still snatch it away. He can snatch it away. We see this back in that parable of the soils in Matthew 13, 19, where Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom 
and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. That's, you go, wow, man, wow. Thirdly, Satan can lead believers, Christians, astray from their faith. As attested to in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, when Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Speaking again to the, uh, the church in Corinth, believers. So, frankly... This is what Satan knows he can do with a Christian, a a believer. He knows 100% that he can tempt you to the point where your faith starts to unravel a bit, crumble, fall apart, though never completely disintegrates. In other words, you might find yourself in a crisis of faith but here's the thing you still have enough faith that you will be sustained though it might not feel much like it at the time right i mean let's face it any crisis of faith or even a weakening our faith it's not going to be good i gave you that example of of me even in the beginning in the beginning job had his moments didn't he even job if you remember in chapter 10, he laments having ever been born. He loathes his life. He feels like he is being dealt with unjustly, that God is against him. In chapter 17, he continues lamenting that God is pained, exhausted, and shattered him. In chapter 18, he speaks of God as having broken Job's spirit, his days extinguished, and his name made a byword. In chapter 19, that God has kindled his anger against Job. In chapter 30, that he has been humiliated. And then, of course, you get to chapters 38 and 39, right? (laughs) Where God's like, okay, enough. You you need to zip it. You're going to listen to me, right? And he kind of of lays it out there for Job and rebukes him. And what do we see in verse 40? (laughs) Job's repentance. His repentance. Praise God. Through it all, Job's faith was tested, but always sustained. Always continued. So what about us here? What about us here at Calvary Bible Church this morning? Maybe we haven't had a crisis of faith, but we've had some crisis of other things. And as we acknowledged previously, the tempter, Satan, is prowling around looking for those that he can devour as we try to hold fast to our course. We try and weather the storms, and, and we try avoid being dashed on the rocks. And, and yes, maybe our faith in the process is being challenged, but like Job, friends, I trust God to strengthen us and to encourage us and to deliver us to the other side where then looking back, we will see our faith as being even more robust than before. This is my hope. This is 
my prayer for anything that would challenge us in life. Getting back to our text, because of all the affliction and suffering and the temptations of Satan, Paul saw a need for the Thessalonians to be strengthened and encouraged, and so Paul does something about it. What did he do? Look at verse 1, where we see our second heading, strength and encouragement delivered. In verse 1, he said, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And then if we were to skip down and look at verse 5a, the beginning of verse 5, we read, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. So Paul sends Timothy, a fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, right? Timothy was Paul's beloved son in the faith. And he sends him to return to Thessalonica to find out how the Thessalonians were, were doing and, and to pastor them and to shepherd them and to strengthen them and encourage them. Now, what does it mean to strengthen somebody, the, the root word there is sterizo, and it means to stand. It means to set fast, to fix firmly, to establish. And, and it can involve a, a steadfastness in mind or a confirmation of something. And for the Thessalonians, it meant spiritual strength that Timothy was ready to deliver. Remember when Satan made a, his little request of, of Jesus... In regard to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon. Uh, that was never a good thing, right? When Jesus, one, says your name twice, but he goes back to Simon instead of calling him Peter, right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again strengthen, there's that same word, strengthen your brothers. In other words, because they're going to need some strengthening that God was able to bless Peter with, that he could then share and impart to them. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul will tell us, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We like that. Uh, Romans chapter 1 Verses 11 to 12, Paul writes, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That's that same word for strengthened. Established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So we see there that, that when believers are together, there actually is this mutual strengthening of one another's faith and and why because when either satan or the world are in attack mode this is how god designed us to be as believers this is part of what our collective faith should do for one another in other words there is no such thing friends as lone ranger christianity there's just not christianity was not meant to be lived out on a, a, an island by oneself. We're all in this together. We need to operate as one body with many parts who, 
for the proper functioning of the body, we need each other. So Pastor Timothy is there. He is there to help keep them strong and steadfast in the faith, established and fixed in place like feet in concrete, right? That's what he was sent there to do. Secondly, he was also sent there to encourage the Thessalonians. This is, I was thinking about this, this is one of the most popular Christian speak words I think we have, right? Encourage. I mean, we love that word, and rightfully so. Uh, we love encouragement. We love to be encouraged. We love to encourage. We, we want to have people to encourage us as well. But what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Now, here's something interesting. It's the word that we saw back in 2 verse 11, chapter 2 verse 11, parakaleto, which as we said before is the word that Jesus uses of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit back in the upper room when he tells them he will send them a helper, paraclete. Again, this word can have a, a wide variety of meanings, such as to aid or help or comfort or uh, Encourage, call for, beseech. It also gets translated in the scriptures as implore, urge, appeal, plead, and beg. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, it will be translated exhort. And in 3.7, when Paul says here just next week, in all our distresses and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. <coughs> comforted is that same word. Now, Back here in chapter 3, verse 2, it's about Timothy coming to their aid and now assisting them to move forward. He has strengthened them, and now he is assisting them to move forward where their faith is concerned, to help continue them in the faith so that their faith would be strong, so that their faith would be unwavering, even growing and maturing. And we can understand this well, right, with those, those classic words from James in chapter 1. Where he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith does what? Produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing, exactly. And again, this is, this is, this is flat out how God has designed things. For us to be strengthened, for us to be encouraged by others, even others who have gone before us, such as we read in Hebrews 11 and 12, those classic chapters, 11, where we have the hall of faith. You got to check that out sometime this week. I ran out of time, so I had to cut out the text. You You can read it on your own. There you go. Bible study for you. But isn't it amazing? I mean, amazing how God uses people in the church to strengthen and encourage each other. Folks, I cannot, I cannot begin to tell you how much myself and the other leaders hold on to every encouraging word or email uh, we receive right now. Because it is you, our church family, who strengthens us so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. And I pray that we have been seeking to do the same for you and for all of you to be doing this with one another. 
as we said, some aspects of our body life right now, our church life, are hard. They're hard. They are difficult. No doubt about it. They are trying and difficult. Things are challenging and confusing still. They are heartbreaking and heart-aching. And yet we, we can have such a profound effect on one another when we are practicing the one another's. Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and focusing on others as being more important than ourselves. So here's a thought. Here's a thought. What if all of us today became committed to seeking out three people? Three people this week with the sole purpose of strengthening them and encouraging them. You can even uh, start this today. Hmm? You can start this out on the patio. You can start this in line, uh, get waiting for your coffee. You can start this in your fellowship groups. Oh, you can start this afterwards when you go to lunch. You can start this at, tonight at pie and praise when we just have some, some, some sweet time of, of fellowship when we, we come together and offer our thanksgivings and praises to God for all the good things that God has done, even in the life of this church and is doing, even as we speak. I, I'm going to just share with you briefly just how I was encouraged and strengthened this week in, in this way. Wednesday evening, I'm sitting in my office, and, and, uh, and I have my, my door open, and, um, and I hear some, some beautiful sounds coming down the hallway. It's amazing. Just so you know, you can hear everything in those hallways. It's like if you're coming down the hallway and you're like, oh, man, that's stinking Pastor Jay. You know, but, you know that's a good chance. I, I heard you when you hit the front door kind of thing, right? But anyway, I hear these sounds just wafting down the hallway, and I, and I, and I kind of go out there, and I look down, and I see the, the doors to room one are open, and it's the sweet sounds of the choir practicing. And I look in, and I used to do the choir years ago here, and I see people that I know from, from back in the day and new people in the choir. And it was like, and I got closer, and I was like, oh, my word, there's a pile of people in here. That's an awesome choir. And my heart was just flush. It was so encouraged just to see fellowship going on. It was so encouraged to see ministry happening. It was so encouraging to hear just them singing, singing, lifting up their voices to the Lord, getting ready for the Christmas concert. And then I, I, I went and down to where I was originally headed to the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I walk in there. I was a little running a little behind. And uh, they were already going, man, and they have the tables all set up. There wasn't a spot. There was not a spot to sit. I had to go and get another chair and bring it over and sit down. It was packed. It was awesome. And again, I was just like, Lord, praise you. Praise you. And how encouraging that was to see brothers and sisters coming together to pray. Yeah. Going back to these three people you might consider this week. Hey. Hey. You're welcome to do four, five, six, whatever. You don't have to stop at three. But maybe you know of somebody that's struggling with, with all that's going on. Maybe think, how, how can you offer them a kind or encouraging word or strengthening of their heart? You know, maybe you can call somebody up on the phone. 
Maybe you can write them an email or you can send them a card or you can spend some time with them. You can invite them out for coffee or a meal or even to share a family outing. And might I encourage you to to talk and 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 ask questions and really to offer a, a listening ear. Sometimes that's the tougher thing for us to do, to just stop and listen to somebody else. And, and then when, when appropriate, provide words that edify. That edify according to the need of the moment, right? So that those words will give grace to those who hear. And certainly pray for them. Pray with them. Now, mind you, this is not for the purpose of venting. Or gossiping. A dear sister in the Lord here at Calvary Bible pointed out to me recently how venting is not in the Bible. Right? It's not. Think about it. It is not scriptural. Now, what do we mean by venting? Well, venting would be a release of anger in a way that lets some of our anger out in kind of a slow or measured way so as to kind of avoid the blow up of anger that we sometimes have. I mean, just think of a volcano, right? A volcano and it has these different um, uh, vent points, you know, where steam and lava can even vent out, uh, avoiding the big giant, you know, blow up kind of situation. But guess what? Vented anger is still what? Anger. It is still anger. And any anger apart from righteous anger, and might I just interject and suggest that we experience true righteous anger? Very little. But any kind of anger then is sinful anger apart from righteous anger. So, your mission this week, should you choose to accept it, is to find three people in the Calvary Bible Church family who need some strengthening, some encouraging, and then, hey, deliver the goods, right? Amen? Lastly, we learned from our text something about trials and the providence of God. Oh, man, I had all kinds of good stuff ready to go for this one. I'm like, ah, I'm already at page, I know exactly where I'm at, you know, by my page number and stuff, and and so uh, we won't get as much as uh, I would like to have uh, brought on this, but um, that's our third heading, Trials in the Providence of God. We, we look back to uh, verse 3, 3b, second half of verse 3. He says, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Wait, destined for what? We have to remind ourselves, this goes back to the afflictions and the suffering and the persecution. We have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So what we see here is the sovereignty and more specifically, the providence of God in action. And if you're sitting there going, so wait a minute, what's the difference between sovereignty of God and providence of God? Thank you for asking. Um, I, I had in school, I might have shared this with you already, but I had the, my, my little um, handy 
pocket dictionary of theological terms, right? And I would just set it, boom, right there on my desk. I was not proud. I was one of these guys later in life. I wasn't like the smart Bible kid who's like, yeah, I would never be seen looking up a word during class in the, my pocket dictionary, whatever. I'm like, you know, looking up all the words, basically, because they're just flying over my head, you know? And, uh, and in any case, it's dog-eared, and I still, it's right there on my bookshelf. I still use it because it just boils things down. And it defines God's sovereignty as this, quote, the biblical concept of God's kingly, supreme rule, legal authority over the entire universe. God's sovereignty is expressed, exercised, and displayed in the divine plan for and outworking of salvation history. End quote. There you go. In the nutshell, I think that's pretty good. What's his providence? His providence, uh, my same source here, defines God's providence by saying this, quote, Though providence is not a biblical term, both the Old Testament and New Testament set forth an understanding of God's gracious outworking of the divine purpose in Christ within the created order of human history. The world and humanity are not ruled by chance or by fate, but by God who directs history and creation toward an ultimate goal. Providence, therefore, refers to God's superintending activity over human actions and human history, bringing creation to its divinely determined goal. If we wanted to nutshell both of those, we could say that God's sovereignty is about his overarching plan for salvation history, which includes the universe and the earth and all people, and his providence is how he accomplishes that plan. How he accomplishes that plan. Now, in the case of our text, what we see is how Paul makes it clear that he and Silas and Timothy were destined to suffer by these afflictions, namely all the persecutions that we talked about earlier. In fact, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they kept telling them in advance that they were going to suffer affliction. In other words, God, through his Holy Spirit, made this clear to Paul. Paul was given direct revelation by God to understand this. And, and friends, make no mistake, this is where I was going to go off on a tangent, but we got to just, uh, we'll talk more about it. Or maybe, you know, yeah, we'll talk more about it another time. But just make no mistake, God doesn't just allow these things to happen. God causes these things to happen, as indicated by the fact that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were destined for these afflictions and sufferings. They were to happen to them. It was part of God's plan. Just like how God didn't allow, but rather caused, all the trials in Joseph's life. You go back and you think of Joseph and all the trials he went through. We have some great texts there. I don't have time to read them at the end of Genesis and 44 and in chapter 50 where he, he says as much. It's not that God just kind of, allowed, oh, hey, yeah, oh, that's good. I'll use that him being thrown in the pit thing. And, and oh, yeah, hey, that's how I'm going to get him to, uh, to, uh, to Egypt. And then, um, oh, the, pot, oh he, the Potiphar wife thing. God's up there going, oh, well, hey, I can use that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, 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 no. No, God caused these things to happen. Now, why? Why would Paul want God's providence in their afflictions and sufferings to be made clear to the Thessalonians, first through Timothy and now through this letter? Well, what would be the point of that? How would this knowledge of God's providence strengthen and encourage them? A few reasons, just briefly. 
One, Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to lose heart in their faith because of persecutions, afflictions, and sufferings. But if they understood that this was all a part of God's sovereign plan and divine providence, that would surely help them deal with these things and get through these difficult times. Secondly, Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to think that that God's sovereign plan of salvation was somehow not working because of these sufferings and afflictions. Right? You can imagine newer, immature believers seeing what was happening to Paul and Silas and Timothy and going, whoa, what's going on? Surely the gospel can't really be at work if you guys are going through all this stuff and now we might be going through this stuff and you've got to be crazy. Wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. What's this all about? This is what we have to look forward to as Christians. Doesn't seem like God's very much in control of anybody's life. And thirdly, Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to think that because of these afflictions and sufferings, that that God was maybe angry with Paul, Silas, or Timothy in, in some way, right? You have to remember that back then, and even in Judaism, there was this common belief that bad things happen when you do what? When you do bad things. When you sin. Remember the man born, born blind from birth? Who Jesus healed in John 9? And how the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Amen. So for the Thessalonian church to see Paul and Silas and Timothy's afflictions and sufferings as some kind of payback from God for some kind of sin in their lives, that would definitely cause the church to, to maybe lose confidence in, in Paul and, and the others in their gospel labors. Now obviously, if Paul and, and, and company were not seen as good examples and they were not seen as people to be imitated, I mean, how much could you really expect the Thessalonians to follow them And in addition, if the Thessalonians thought wrongly about these afflictions and didn't understand that they were from God, this would play right into Satan's deceptive hand. It would. I'm going to wrap things up here. I came across great. I was sitting there. I was going back and I was actually deleting emails uh, this morning on my my Calvary uh, deal. And and I came across this one. I was like, oh, that's a good quote. And then I found the, the whole gist of it. It's from a dear sister from one of our fellowship groups who recently sent out this quote from Spurgeon. And he said this, quote, all events are under the control of providence. All providences are doors to trial. Our mountains are not too high, our valleys are not too low for temptations. Trials lurk on all roads. The trials which come from God are sent to prove and strengthen our graces. And so at once, to illustrate the power of divine grace, to test the genuineness of our virtues, and to add to their energy. Our Lord in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love sets so high a value upon his people's faith that he will not screen them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. You would never have possessed the precious faith which now supports you if the trial of your faith had not been like unto faith. 
fire. End quote. Some good words. So what can we learn from this this morning? Well, that God will sovereignly, sovereignly bring about trials and tribulations, afflictions and sufferings and problems and difficulties, but always for an an intended purpose. And we would say a good one at that, a purpose that will ultimately be for our benefit and his glory. And, And you might ask, even in all that we are currently going through here at Calvary Bible Church as a church body, as a church family, yes, absolutely. God is in Indeed, friends, providentially at work as we speak here at CBC. And in doing so, rest assured that he is molding and he is shaping and he is refining and renewing and changing and growing and maturing and encouraging and strengthening us in the faith. He is. And you know what? These things can be extremely painful. But when we come through the storm, we come out on the other side and we're able to look back and we are able to then see His amazing handiwork and all that he did to bring us through the storm. We will praise him and we will give him glory just as we are doing right now while in the middle of it. That's one reason I wanted to even see the pie and praise happen tonight. That we can just stop and come together in fellowship. But to praise and thank God for his goodness. Whether it's to us as individuals and things that have happened in your life. Or or even to us in the life of the church. Knowing that his sovereign purposes and plan are being accomplished. As Romans 8.28 said. Please say it with me if you know it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father God, again, we get to the end of our time here in your word. And I pray that, Father, everyone has been strengthened and encouraged in in even some form or fashion by just the reading of your word and, and learning from your word, myself included, that, Lord, we recognize that, yes, we are in a time of trial, a time of difficulty. And, Father, we thank you that we know that these appointments are divine ones. And we know, Father, too, that just as we said from Romans 8, 28, all things will be used for um, our good and your glory for those who know Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for any that are here this morning that, that don't yet know Christ, that they would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus, that they would be saved and leave here, Lord, with, with, with tremendous hope. And Father, we just thank you and praise you and 
look forward to the rest of our day and coming back together to be together as a church family. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.